welcome to Rock Paper Swords, the historical action and adventure podcast. My name is Matthew Harfey. And my name is Stephen A. McKay. We're both best-selling historical fiction authors, and together we chat about all things historical and anything that could fall under the banner of action and adventure in books, film, TV, and games. And we also talk about rock music sometimes. Today, we're going to talk about research, or research. In particular, how we go about it for our novels, what resources we use, and which books and other things are at the top of our go-to research pile. Over to you, Stephen. Okay. How do you research? <laughs> I usually use Google, um, Wikipedia, Good. and that's that's basically it. That's okay. the extent of ex- extent of my research. I think that's the that's that's good enough, isn't it? I mean, re- Wikipedia. I mean, my wife, my wife will be furious if she hears us say this because she's actually a, a, an academic librarian. Um, so yeah, I think um, yeah, I think she's not a great fan of Wikipedia. Right. But it is. I, I find it a great place to start research, though. That's just yeah, a, I was I was making a joke, but I know I, no, I, no, I actually do in, use in seriousness. Uh, yeah, I do use Wikipedia and Google uh, all the time as a, as a stepping in point to, yeah. to research. Yeah, and um, it is it is interesting how much you can find doing random searches, but also, of course, you do need to corroborate things and um, make sure that you're not reading some crazy person's blog that's just made something up? Well, I usually use it, <coughs> pardon me, for, um, say, you need to know, the likes of us definitely need to know what the names were of certain towns back in Anglo-Saxon times, Viking times or whatever. And uh, Wikipedia is perfect for that, you know, because you can look up Google Maps and you think, well, they go from here to there on the map, which you can do on Google Maps, and then you can just click on the name of the town and it'll bring up the Wikipedia page and it will tell you the history of the name. And from there, you can maybe look up the Doomsday Book or whatever online and find the actual name of the town back then. And they usually give you a few certain ones, certain spellings, and you can pick your own one and go from there. Yeah, I've got the um, the Oxford Dictionary of English Place Names that um, I use quite a lot. An actual book? It's a book, yeah, okay, actual yeah. book. Yeah, I've got quite a lot of books. I um, I tend not to buy that many new books nowadays because they're so expensive, especially lots of the sort of the more you know academic historical sort of ones. But yeah, they can be really expensive. But yeah, I've, I I think when I when I started doing the research for the Benicia Chronicles, I, I of course it was twenty one years ago so it was really before there was many resources there are now online as well um and so I, I did a lot of secondhand book shopping just going to the local oxfam shop and things and whenever i'd see something about the history mm. of the anglo-saxons or things like that i would buy them so yeah i've got quite a lot of those things but yeah i did buy uh yeah this english place names dictionary of english place names which is useful and it gives you the historical you know when the things are mentioned so um quite good it's handy but I would imagine it'd be quite hard to find stuff if you're used to just, you know, Wikipedia telling you straight away. Oh, well, no, because it's because it's it's just um, in alphabetical order with the with the modern name. So you just search. So you search for so London. You search the modern name. Yeah, yeah. You ah, just right, give okay. the modern name. And it gives you and it gives you the historical entries mm-hmm. um, going back. You know, so like say fourteenth century, it was this, and it gives you like the etymology of it as well, and tells you. Yeah. So it's it's really really useful. It's a little paperback. It's not a it's not a really big. Yeah, I've thing. seen it, but like but, you say, I think it's quite expensive. Well, I don't know. I definitely didn't buy that new. No. Oh, need to have a is. look for it. There you I, go. I've definitely seen that reviewed somewhere, and I looked at buying it. It's. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. It was. Yeah, I bought it secondhand, but um, it's definitely worth a. Worth a, a, a yeah, worth a, a punt. Yeah, I'll have a look at that. Anyone in historical fiction writing kind of needs to know this stuff. Yeah, it's funny. I got the other day. I got. I actually maybe saved this for our review um, episode that we keep on talking about doing. But um, somebody did. I was reading some some of my bad reviews in preparation for that, um, and somebody had said something about um, oh, he relies too much on using like the old names for places. Well, that's what I mean when I say Wikipedia and that book, I'd imagine, will give you maybe four or five different versions of the name. 
even the Doomsday Book will have yeah. different versions of the name of the place. So what I do is I usually just find one that looks the best to me. Maybe the simplest to spell, it's closest to the modern word that we use. Oh, that's interesting. Today, I, you know? I tend to go for the one that's furthest away from the modern spelling and that looks most archaic, and that's probably what <laughs> pissed off the reviewer. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, because I think it, it it gives that. I think it's like part of the historical fiction writing is is sort of to conjure up a feeling of authenticity that you're in a different world, and so for me, calling a place something very different from from you know what it what we know it now, I think is it's part of that conjuring up that that mystery. Yeah, I know what you mean, but uh, at the same time, I like things that are easy to read rather than having loads of extra letters. Just shoved in that's seemingly at random the way they used to do back then. Have, so here's a question. You mentioned the Doomsday Book a couple of times. Um, have you got a copy of the Doomsday Book? No, it's only recently, just maybe in the past two weeks or something, that I started to find it on Google. So interesting, interesting enough, I have two copies <clears throat> of the Doomsday Book. So perhaps after this podcast, um, you could give me your address if I don't have it already, and I could you send do? you one of my copies of the Doomsday Book, which I'm sure you would find useful because there's no point in me having two sitting on my shelf. I'll take that. I'll take anything for free. I know. I know you will. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so, yes, so the Doomsday Book, if anybody doesn't know, um, the Doomsday Book, what was the Doomsday Book, Stephen? Don't ask me. Uh, I believe it was a list of, was was it a kind of government document of places and... Like yeah. a taxation type thing, pretty pretty much. Yeah, I think it was like the sort of the the, the census um, after the uh, the Norman Conquest. So the yeah, very beginning the of the Norman Hastings Conquest, thing. the late uh, sort of the second half of the eleventh uh, century, mm. after ten, I think it was like the ten sixties, ten eighties, ten seventies, whatever. Um, and it was yeah, it was a it was a compilation of everything that was owned and who owned what and what land was owned by whom and all of that stuff. And yeah, I think it was really basically just to make sure they could tax everybody correctly and. But uh, looking at the scans online, it's extremely difficult to read to our modern eyes. It's uh, obviously not printed on yeah. a nice, easy-to-read font. It's some guys sitting down writing it by hand. Oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. And lots of people, probably. Many, yeah, many people, I probably, I'd imagine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the copies I've got are, are not just facsimiles, so they are actually modern print, so you'll be able to read them a little bit, a little bit Excellent. easier. Well, no, I was just going to say that the things that we read for research now are so much easier uh, yes. on the eyes. So why don't we start with some, you've got the topics down here. Is, the first one is general history of Britain in the medieval period. So I'll go first with a wee research book that I like. Okay. So we've got the Time Traveller's Guide to Medieval England by Ian Mortimer. Ah, Okay. Uh, I, I haven't got this. that one. You're kidding? This is a classic. I don't think. Hold it up. Let me see the cover. I don't think. Oh, I might have it. I don't know. He, he's written a few, I think, uh, of different periods. But it's basically what it would be like if you turned up in medieval England as you are now and had to try and fit in. So it's got things like the price of a pint of beer, uh, how much you would be paid if you were a carpenter. Ah, in those stuff. days, it's excellent, but it's also really well written and an engaging kind of narrative way. Uh, here we go. I'll just quickly flick through it. Townhouses, where to stay, and then it describes uh, the poorest town dwellers are not people with whom you are likely to stay. And then it goes into a whole big spiel about what a townhouse would be like for the cheap people, uh, the poor people, and the the richer people. And then you've got health and hygiene, the law. So there's fines, a penalty for bakers for, you know, making bad bread or whatever. And all these different headings. And it's a good book to read. It's a fun book to read. But it's also extremely valuable when it comes to research for, you know, if you're writing about medieval period as I was with Robin Hood at the time. Yeah, I have a similar book to that that I read. Um, and I've got a copy. I've got two copies of that as well. <laughs> somebody, somebody gave me. Somebody gave me actually a, a copy. I have the paperback, and somebody's given me the hardback. Um, the year one thousand. Have you read that one? No. Who, who's who's written that? It's written by um, Robert Lacey and Danny Danziger. So 
this is similar to what you were saying, but it's based, I think it's, um, I'm trying to remember now, it's based on the, on the different um, months of the year. And it just sort of basically just tell, it's very well written and it just looks like the, in like the year 1000, um, what people would have been doing in each of those months. And so it just goes through and sort of describes all the things that would have happened oh, right. as part of it. So it's really interesting. Like the harvest time. And, yeah, yeah. Because I'm always looking up stuff like harvest time for seasons. Well, you know what? As I have two copies of this, Perfect. They, could send slipping, it. Send it on. They, they could be slipping into your doomsday <laughs> book um, post as well. Yeah, so, you know, it, it's time to meet someone from the year 1000, at least to the extent that dry legal documents can provide human contact across the years. Here is Alflad, a noblewoman who died sometime between 1000 and 1002, leaving huge estates in Essex and East Anglia. And then it goes on and just sort of talks about specific people in different times and what they would do. Well, even um, that, it's interesting, just that yeah. sentence. It's a, a noble woman. Yeah. Who's died and left all these rich estates, which is, you know, that's interesting in itself. As a woman. I've, actually, I've actually used it as I folded over the edges. Um, all pages. my books are like that. They're all underlined pages folded over. It's horrendous, actually. People would be disgusted the way I treat books. Well. But um, no, I've got something similar here, but I'll talk about that when we go on to the uh, next yeah. topic, AD 500. And it, but I'll talk yeah, about so that talk when we go on. If sort of talking about the sort of more of the general because this is very much I think we've sort of touching on a little on one of the topics we're going to go on to later on um, already, but sort of talking about the sort of the general history of the time in my books like the Anglo-Saxon period for most of my books. So talking about the the kings and you know who's the king of who of where and you know when did they fight and everything, I do actually use um, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle as a first uh, port of call. There, which was written, I believe it was written sort of in the time of Alf Alfred, yeah, Alfred the Great. And but looking back over this, there's probably lots of it is, is you know, wrong and um, it's all mm. got to be taken with a bit of pinch of salt. And the further back you go, the more uh, vague it gets. Um, but I also look at um, the Venerable Bede, his um, history of the ecclesiastical, or the ecclesiastical history of the English people, I think it's called something like that in Latin. Yeah. Um, and he gives a lot more detail, of course, of, of the seventh century, which is when when I'm writing about in the Benicia Chronicles. Uh, so he he was born at the end, I think, sort of the second half, late seventh century, and or something like that, Maybe seventh eighth century, somewhere around there. So it was quite recent to him. So yeah, I think he was in, he was interviewing people that had lived at the time. Sometimes you know other monks that had been around that were old mm -hmm. that remembered some of the kings and stuff. And so he talks about King Oswald and about different anecdotes that happened. So I do lift bits from there and really try to incorporate them yeah, into, into there, the man. stories yeah um, uh i've also got this one going back to the, the small people rather than yeah. the kings life in the medieval village oh, that's by good. francis and joseph geese or guys i don't know how you pronounce that have you read that one no i haven't sorry well, they the do have is, one about a castle as well but that's more like french castles and stuff and it's it's not yeah. as useful whereas this is really about a Kind of a small village in England, and it's Elton actually. Well, it's interesting because you, because your books that you you wrote until the before the Druid books were all yeah. um, set in much later medieval period than mm -hmm. than the period that I tend to write about. So it's interesting. That obviously, some of your books are sort of higher medieval, sort of later medieval period. But I also find that I have got some books that are set like for the sort of day to day life that are set later. And I find that it's very easy to extrapolate that back in time anyway. Yeah, exactly. Because the life the of, stuff, a, of a peasant, uh -huh. it doesn't change Farming and stuff like that. The clothes yeah. they wore wouldn't have been drastically different. The technology was much the same. And this this has got all of that in it, like the villagers, who they were, the lord, uh, the type of house, how it was built, you know, the construction and ju village justice, the village at work, what kind of jobs they did. And, you know, it, it's not quite as interesting to read as uh, Ian Mortimer's one, but as a research book, it's perfect. And it's got lists of names and stuff like that from court roles, which are ideal for a historical fiction author to use in their books, you know, mix and match. Yeah, I've got a book um, a bit like that called Lost Country Life by Dorothy someone. <laughs> it's such an old book. I'm just putting it off my shelf. Dorothy Hartley. So the back, the, the spine of it, I couldn't see on the spine, the name is knackered. 
But um, how English country folk lived, worked, threshed, thatched, rolled fleece, milled corn, brewed mead. Mm-hmm. So, but but it's it's much more geared towards. And again, this has got monthly. You know, it tells you each month what they were doing. This is right. really useful. Uh-huh. But it's much more geared towards sort of later in history. I think you know, it's not only medieval, but the day to day life of people really up Every until the summer. industrial revolution. Mm-hmm didn't really change so yeah i find that quite useful i think it's an american book it's printed in the usa but it's definitely talking about british Dorothy country Hartman. life that's, that's good i haven't used so it is as much as uh, <laughs> probably fly fishing <laughs> probably i don't know if anyone knows that's that's a great advert <clears throat> i'm sure everybody knows it i just found a bizarre cutting inside this book I don't think I definitely didn't put it there. It's a it's a cutting about mid year. Mid year. Somebody called me a shit mid year on Facebook the other day. <laughs> Somebody's put a cutting in it about mid year. It's called mid year. Too little, too late is the headline. Well, I agree with it, that. But, um, oh, there you go. He was in Thin Lizzy. He's a guitarist, which amazed me. Wow. There you go. Uh, yeah. So. Those two books that I've picked, and I think the ones you've picked as well, they give you a good background in, you know, the actual daily life, how people brewed beer, uh, how they worked, the jobs they did and things like that. But I also like to branch out a wee bit. So for my new book, which I won't mention too much, but I'm using this as a wee bit oh, of research. Oh, you mean, you mean a new book that you're writing? Yes, Ah, which okay. I can't really talk about just yet. But okay. the research for it is this Brian Bates, The Way of Weird. Mm. Uh, it's a bit esoteric. Exactly. It's supposedly about Anglo-Saxon, almost coming into the Viking period, uh, magic, you know, magician type. Not a druid, but that kind of idea. Uh, it's not a particularly good book. I'm not really enjoying reading it very much. I think I've got I think but, I've got a Brian Bates book and I seem to remember that wasn't very good either. Um, I like to, to read things like this. I did it when I was researching Robin Hood as well. That I would read things that were a bit more esoteric and they were into the mythology and the magic and the mysticism yeah. and stuff because people back then really did believe in this stuff Absolutely. much more than we do now. And it helps you to bring out things for characters just give them extra things to believe in and maybe make it a bit more realistic for a modern reader to understand this kind of stuff so although i'm not enjoying this book very much i'm finding it very handy and i've got like you the pages are all why why are you not enjoying it it's just kind of a boring book and it's not very well written i actually read about the first chapter and i gave up i thought it was terrible. this is this is really interesting because I, i just looked on my shelf and i've got a book by brian bates as well and it's called the real middle earth and I think again, actually that I've bought that as well. I never even realized it was again, the same. Again, I don't guy. think don't think it's great either. I never realized it was the same author, but I did buy that. Well, unless there's two Brian Bates writing about the dark ages, this, seems unlikely. And mysticism and yeah. well, it says on it reads like a fusion of Carlos Castaneda and Tolkien. Mm. Yeah, so the real Middle Earth. So just for anyone who is not aware, I have been called up. In a, before by a reader saying about my use of the word Middle Earth or the, the term Middle Earth in my books in the in the Benicia Chronicles, saying you know it's not fantasy, you know this isn't Tolkien. But they did use that. Well, of course it was. It's it's a, it's the old English term and the <laughs> for you know and, and the Vikings called it Midgard. It yeah, was, which know, just means the, Middle Earth. It's the Middle Earth. It's the the Earth between yeah. the you know heaven and hell. Basically, it's it's the it's the middle. It's it's where we live and um, where humans live. And so yes, Middle Earth is in fact the old English term um, for Earth, basically for Earth. Yeah. yeah. And so it it was amused it amused me. But yeah, so when people talk about the real Middle Earth, he's talking about the Anglo-Saxon period and the the, the Norse. So well, yeah, I'll have that to look forward to. <laughs> Yeah, I'm thinking about other books, so but sort of general history of the period of uh, of the Anglo-Saxons, sort of covering the whole Anglo-Saxon period. There's um, a, a book called um, by Nicholas J. Hyam and Martin J. Ryan, which is the Anglo-Saxon world, and that's a big chunky volume which came out just a few years ago, and that's a big, you know, good 
book that covers the whole period. There's another book that came out quite recently that did very well called um, The Anglo-Saxons by Mark Morris. Ah, there's yes, nothing I've got that in Audible. Okay, there's nothing, there's nothing in that, as far as I could see, that brought anything new to the table. It's mm. one of those books when you've read lots about the Anglo-Saxon period. Yeah, you know what? You sort of think, well, yeah, I know all this, but it's well written and it's easy. It's easy to to consume and read. Yeah, well, I listened to the chapters on Audible that yeah. are relevant to my research, and I, yeah, it was easier to listen to. Uh, so I would recommend it. Yeah, it makes a difference if something's well written. Um, mm-hmm. And that sounds like an obvious an obvious comment, but it's but, you know some books really aren't very well written. Um, another one that's very well written that's really good for the period of the Benicia Chronicles, and it's really acted as a sort of a, um, I guess, the, a non-fiction uh, accompaniment to the to the Benicia Chronicles is the King in the North by Max Adams. It's actually published by Head of Zeus, like me. Right. And anyone who's eagle-eyed will notice that the maps in it are very similar in design to mine because they're done by the same cartographer in the style of Tolkien. Um, and obviously, we cover the same period in history, so lots of it is very similar. So is that a novel? It's not a novel. No, it's a, it's a non-fiction book about um, King Oswald and the 7th right. century. So it's, a, it's supposedly it's a, a biography of King Oswald. Mm. The reality is that King Oswald, you know, there's not that much written about him. So there's probably like two chapters that are sort of his biography and the rest of the book, which is a big chunky book, is just the whole sort of history of the seventh century. So it covers Oswe and Edwin and the whole period that I write about and keeps going on right to the end of the seventh century, really, and talks about its place in the world and, and loads of stuff. So it's really, really good. I thought and you he- were actually going to mention this one. When you were... Oh, I've, I've got that as well. <laughs> yeah, I know you have. I think that's why I bought it. I think uh, okay. so. It's uh, The Mead Hall by Stephen Paulington. Yeah. The feasting tradition in Anglo-Saxon England. And as you say, the, nothing really changed much over these periods, over hundreds of years. So it might be about Anglo-Saxon England, but this is going to fit my Druid books and Viking era books and stuff like that, you know, everything's kind of similar. The halls are the same. The stuff that we're drinking and eating was much the same. So uh, this is a really good book. It's, again, it's not particularly easy read, but there's plenty in it where you can find stuff to use in your own books. Just yeah. slot in little little lines and little bits of research from that to make it more authentic. Yeah, Stephen Pollington's a really knowledgeable writer about the Anglo-Saxon period specifically. Um, I've got a book, another book of his actually called um, The English Warrior from Earliest Times till 1066. And that's um, again by Stephen Pollington and that's really good as well and goes into a lot of detail about the warrior culture of the mm-hmm. Anglo-Saxons and basically about everything you could imagine from their weaponry to how they thought and how they structured their armies and how they structured the nobility and why they thought the way they did and you know everything everything that you could really want to know about warriors and and it's perfect something like that you would even just a line to slot into your novel yeah it makes it sound so much more authentic if you can take it from something like that from reality Uh, I mentioned this one earlier AD 500 by Simon Young yeah, I got that one as well. I just saw it on my oh, shelf. Oh, you got it? Is I it, don't think I've read it, but I've got it on my shelf. Well, it's probably not quite relevant as much to your later period because this is the Romans have just left at this point. So it's perfect for my druid stuff. And it's basically just he goes around the whole of Britain. Again, it's as if he's a time traveller or a, a traveller. Uh, I think he's supposed to be a traveller from Rome, actually. And he goes around Britain, Cornwall oh, and yes. Wales, Ireland... Scotland depicts and worse England and it, it just basically describes all the different courts and the people you might meet and the things they believe in and the foods they would eat and you know all this kind of stuff so that's an excellent book for anybody writing around the, the AD 500 period it's really well researched and it just fits so well with my own books that's good stuff so We've, we've done lots of sort of general history of the period and everything. Have you got um, – we've talked about the way of life as well. Um, one of the other topics I had here was about clothing. Uh, it's something I always find quite difficult to find a lot of really good detail about you don't what people really, wore. Yeah, you don't get many books that are just specifically about clothing. However, 
I see that. your next your next heading there is weapons and military. Well, I was going to say about the clothing one before we move on to the weapons and military. Well, I wasn't you get a lot to, more about, about I was that. Going to, I was going to include the clothing. That's what I was going to say. But carry on if you if you've got something extra about the clothing, carry on. I've got a book called Dress in Anglo-Saxon England by Owen Crocker and um, or Owen and Crocker. I don't know. But anyway, it's um, it's on my shelf back there and. Um, yeah, that's really good. And it sort of talks about the clothing and the evidence, the archaeological evidence for the clothing for each period in the Anglo-Saxon um, period, mm -hmm. which, of course, Anglo-Saxon England covers from 5th century right through to 11th century. So it's a really big span. And so it's quite it's useful in that it tells you what sort of jewellery women were wearing, what type of clothing they, they got, whether they were wearing longer dresses or shorter dresses and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that sounds um, handy. I'll have to that's get really a copy good. Of that. You've not got two copies of that, have you? I haven't got two copies of that. I think that was more I think that was a more expensive one. Um yeah, I yeah, I haven't. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, mate. <laughs> I noticed <laughs> I got two copies of a book about the Sutton Who helmet as well. So uh, <laughs> all my twofers, I'll just send you an extra copy But it's actually about that helmet specifically. Yeah. Yes, right. I bought I bought it at the, the British British Museum, I think. Right. And I don't know how I got two of them. You bought two by accident. I don't know. Who knows? I'll take this as well. That looks good. <laughs> so you're saying about well, that's that's a, a nice segue, the Sutton Who helmets, moving on to armor and weapons. Well, uh, we have to include Osprey. Oh yes. These Osprey publishers, these are the absolute best books for a historical fiction author that's writing about military stuff anyway. Yes, they're, very, they're really so good. so many of these books. I must have about 20 of them. And they're only thin, little, skinny yeah. paperbacks that... Um, they're cheap. And they're like a tenner or, or less well, if you second can find hand. Them, or whatever, yeah, yeah, you can find them cheaper than that on Amazon, seven quid or something, maybe. Yeah, and they're very specific. So I, I'm just yeah. looking at some of my titles of the ones I've got here on my shelf. So Anglo-Saxon Thane, AD that's the one here. to 1066. And my hands. Yeah. Yep. Um, you've got British forts in the Age of Arthur. You've I've got, got that, that one. one. Yep. Yeah. Arthur and the Anglo-Saxon Wars. Yep. That got that. Yeah, yep. yeah. Fortifications in Wessex. Yep. Eight hundred to ten sixty-six. Strongholds of the Picts. Yep. Pictish warrior. Yep. Yeah. So we've got we, all of these. We all got the same ones. So we get. So yeah. Luckily, I don't need to send you all my copies. No, I've also got. <laughs> unless you've got two, but. Um, <laughs> I've also got the ones about the Romans. So there's various Roman centurions. Yeah. They're out. There's like three different books on the Roman centurion alone, the, the stuff they would wear. And I've also got the the medieval ones where it's the Knights Hospital mm -hmm. and all their various shields and their banners and helmets they would wear and all this. And, and that's basically what you get in these books. Yeah. It gives you like an overview of the history of that particular type of warrior looking at or, or whatever it is they do things about certain campaigns as well in you know, battles and things yeah they go into some... a bit more detail in some of them yeah i've got one here i mean i bought a few actually second hand recently oh, knocking all my books over um i bought some recently from uh ben kane who was selling some off right. for, for charity he does this regularly sells things off to raise money for charity i don't know where he got these books from but i bought a few so I've got armies of the Muslim conquest. So they do things like that as well. I don't know that one. No, well, but that may be. I've got some about Vikings and I've got some about Byzantine or Byzantine warriors. And so, yeah, there's a few different periods that obviously we've touched on. I've but just yeah, opened great. this, uh, the Anglo-Saxon one, and it's clothing. That is one of the headings. And it's cloaks, tunics, leggings and footwear, headgear. So it describes it all. Yeah, they're really good at giving sort of a, a snapshot. I think sometimes if you look at the in detail at the history, they're a bit questionable, or they don't go into a lot. They don't go into enough detail, or they kind of gloss over things. But for sort of the level of detail that you need to include in for an action books, adventure novel, it's probably exactly. enough. Yeah, and uh, there's lots of photographs, and in particular, in the centre of each book, they've got uh, detailed pictures of like a warrior, and then and they explode the diagram. And they tell you what the helmet's made up from, the, what it consists of, what the shield's made up of, the, all the various parts, the sword, the various parts of each sword, and where they found it archaeologically. And it's just the, these Osprey books are ideal for historical fiction authors, and they're so cheap. Yeah, they're brilliant, and um, they're often the, the, they've the, 
you're saying about photos, they got like full color um, paintings, sort of um, artist impressions yeah. of, of the periods as well and things. And, and often by, lots of them by Angus McBride, who's a fantastic artist who, who's sadly no longer with us. But he used to do the um, lots of paintings for the Middle Earth role-playing game, going back to oh, Middle yeah. Earth. So for like the Tolkien role-playing game back in the 80s and 90s. Um, but yeah, his, his paintings are fantastic. Um, he did yeah, they're, of the Osprey they're, they're stuff always so really, good. Really yeah, they're good. really evocative. They're really evocative because he, he puts in like two or three warriors in a different poses, but they're never just sort of standing there looking boring. They're sort of doing something. Expensive. Yeah, their mouths open, they're shouting and they're fighting and they're getting stabbed in the guts yeah, by yeah, a spear and stuff like that. And they're wearing going on. Yeah, they're wearing the say maybe a green tunic. And you know, I'll write in my book. Oh, the book, he was wearing a green tunic because I'll just look at the picture in the hospital book and I'll go, Well, that's perfect, I'll just use that. So you mix and match a green tunic from one picture and the helmet from another, and you know, there you go, it's authentic. Yeah, it certainly feels authentic, even if you know, even if some sort of archaeologist will look at it and say, Well, I'm not, I don't know about some of that, they definitely get that, that authenticity feeling about it. Yeah. Which is the main thing if you're trying to tell a good story. Yeah, which is I think I think those paintings by Angus McBride and the other artists that have done that they do do those mm. um, color paintings in the Osprey books. I think they're very much doing similar to what we do as, as storytellers. They you know, very quickly tell a story. They try to be yeah. as authentic as they possibly can with what the armor is, but it's their interpretation of it within the context. Um. So another category I've got here is about geography and maps. So you talked about names of places. Um, obviously, at, we, I think we mentioned it another time we were talking as another um, episode, but obviously there's um, they're always travelling around. It's very important to make sure that we know where they're going and, and you, you mentioned the names them? of the places, but um, how long it takes them. Yeah, and, um, what the, and what the terrain was like at the time. So mm -hmm. one of the things that, I think people will not think about very much. And I know I didn't think about it when I started writing was how much the landscape changes over time. And obviously a mountain that's there now is a mountain, you know, has always been a mountain unless there's been a massive volcanic eruption or something that's blown it, blown it away, which does happen. But often in the British Isles is you get, Areas which were total swamps or you know submerged almost, which now are dry. So you go somewhere and you think, oh yeah, I, I understand what this coastline looks like, but actually back in 700 AD or something, it would have been underwater or been yeah, it was a whole marsh, river or something, marshland yeah. or a river or the rivers yeah. moved. Um, so those things are really interesting. So what 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 sort of resources do you use for that sort of stuff? Well, uh, I've got a few maps. Uh, ordnance survey maps that fold out but to be honest I hardly ever use them because they fold out so big and my study's so small that they take up the entire thing and is then you the, try to fold them back in Is that the um, ordnance survey map of the Dark Ages Britain? Is it called? No that's a different I've got Britain that one as Dark well Ages. I do have that one as well uh, I think again I saw you posted a picture of it so I bought it uh, <laughs> Yeah because that one's great but it's, um, it, it's out of print now you have to buy it second hand I think it was printed like in the 70s yeah, or 60s it's an or ancient one I've got uh, no it's this one OS Historical oh, Ancient so, Britain this one's Ancient Britain and I've also got Ancient Roman one as well but Yeah, I've, I, guess so I I've, don't really open them up that often yeah, I, so even the one that we said, the Dark Age Britain one, I have, I do open up from time to time, but but like you say, they're just too big to open up, and you're scared that they're going to break it or something. Exactly, well. up it or something. But, but they are, um, they are, they are great, and they've got the names of the places and stuff, and they're useful. I've got some. I, I do tend to use like the maps in books I mentioned before, um, the Max Adams book, and that's got great maps in it. So you know, I'll look at maps mm -hmm. in other history books, and I've got an atlas. Um, I'm trying to see where it is on my shelf, but yeah, I've got an atlas of um, Anglo-Saxon Britain. I'm just trying to find it. Where is it? Yeah, there's there's a lots of stuff out there like that. I've got an atlas of Roman Britain that I did use when I was writing Lucia, which is a bit handier than the the huge fold-out maps. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to find out where I can't see it now on my shelf. But yeah, I have got an atlas of um, of. Anglo-Saxon Britain, and it's really useful because each page, as you oh here it is, it's by David Hill, an atlas of Anglo-Saxon England, and um, you know each page will, will cover different topics um, like the distribution of forests and or things like that, and and, and so it'll be very useful for when you're writing. Mm -hmm. oh, that um, sounds and, good. And because what I find twice now, 
when I've been writing books. Obviously, I live in Scotland. I don't really know places like East Anglia very well. Okay, yeah, yeah. And there's been two times recently where I've been writing a scene in East Anglia, a kind of battle scene, and I've mentioned a hill. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I look up the topography on Google Maps again, I realise there's actually no hills there's anywhere no near hills. these places. <laughs> there's no hills. There's no hills. I, I, I swore there because, yeah, there's, there's, no, there's no hills in East Anglia. In fact, if you go back to the the period that we're writing about, um, lots of East Anglia was underwater at the time. Right. Okay. So loads of it was fens, um, mm-hmm. and and very very difficult to to to, to navigate. Really, um, navigated by water more than by land. Um, I mentioned quite a lot of East Anglia in Killer of Kings. Um, they go there and they end up having a fight in a. There's a causeway, mm. um, not a causeway. Um, a, what you call it? Like a dike. There's a dike. Right. They do. They do travel across. They travel across a causeway earlier on, like a raised Roman road. But yeah, it's all fens and stuff. And well, you live near there, don't you? Flat. It's about a five hour drive from me. So is it as far away? Bit of a trek. <laughs> but it, it just it's like an alien planet to me, where I live in Scotland. It's a long way. I've only visited everywhere's hills and stuff. I visited East Anglia like twice. I've I don't think I've very... ever been there. I don't remember. I must have been really young if I ever did go there. It just seems so weird to think of a a part of this country that's just so flat. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really interesting because it is so different, and the fact that so much of it is reclaimed land as well, and that if you look at, um, I'm trying to think, where, I've got maps somewhere that show the um, it's probably in that um, atlas of um, Anglo-Saxon England actually, mm. where it shows the the land as it would have been at the time and the land now. Like the right. two different separate lines because yeah, it's totally handy. different. It's mm-hmm. totally different, and um, lots and lots of, as I said, was underwater. But there's like whole towns that are on medieval maps that don't no longer exist because they fall into yeah. the sea and all that sort uh-huh. of stuff. So it's um, and it's all on that coastline. That coastline is very weird. I mean, it's not. It would have been a very strange place, and I think people were very separate. You know, Fen people were were deemed to be you know, very different from the rest of the, the mainland. And, and during the sort of 1066 period after Herod the Wake and the, the, the um, uh, there was like a rebellion against the, uh, or resistance, should I say, against the, uh, the Norman conquerors. And that all took place around in, in the Fens in East Anglia. And Yeah, that sounds familiar. I've read the James Wilde, a couple yeah. of those books about Herod. And yeah, that definitely brings back a memory of him being in the swamps and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because they could basically hide there. They could go in there, and it's very difficult mm-hmm. for the normals to follow them. Because if you didn't know the paths and whatever, you just go in and and die. You know, get you get drowned or whatever, or get you know yeah. cut off from the from the road. And but it's really annoying if you're trying to write a historical fiction battle, and you've got people up in a hilltop, and then you realise actually there's no hilltop, and that's where Google Maps really comes in. Or there are topographical maps you can look up yeah. on the internet as well, and it just so what I'll then do is I'll find the highest hill I can find near the area, which is basically just a slope to me. But it has to fit, you know. It, it, yeah, you there are rises. If a battle really happened in historical fact in the year whatever, then you can't make up a different setting for it. You have to I use know. that setting and try and find some local landmark that's slightly higher than anywhere else. Yeah, well, if you're writing about um, after the seventh century, I, I don't know which which book you're talking about, but um, there's definitely some places that you could use to the south where they've got um, these big dikes that were defensive yeah. dikes, that presumably. Uh-huh. So where they, where I've pitched one of my battles there, and there's no historical evidence for the battle taking place there, but they knew the dike was there at the time, and so it had been dug for some sort of defensive mm. position across one of the main. Um, roads, some of the ancient roadways, the Icknield Way, I think it is. And so there's um, this big dike cut across, and the dike's still there now. You know, it's huge. And so it's funny, that, that word dike is used yeah. for various different things. Well, this is like Offer's Dike, so basically yeah. a defensive ditch. I mean, it comes from, it's the same root as ditch, so it just means a big ditch, really. But I remember looking up the medieval uh, stuff, and dike would just be used for like a stream, basically. Yeah, so it means ditch. So, it's, yeah. it's, but but obviously, if it's a if it's done for defence, it's it's bigger and deeper. Yeah, well, in Scotland, so, yeah. a dike would just maybe be like a small wall or something as well. Okay, you know, yeah. 
Sure, I. So they use, yeah, I think the word is also used for these sort of protective um, water protection, isn't it? Like in, in, in the lowlands in, in the Netherlands, they use dikes to protect against the sea. You know, where they've reclaimed land, they build a dike. Right. So it's, I think it's for walls as well as ditches. Yeah, that does make so sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Although why, I do not know. Hmm. So we talked about distance between places. So when the characters are traveling, um, so one of the simple ways, of course, that I, I use is to put the two places from um, on Google Maps and just set it to walking and say, well, yeah. how long does it take them? And it says it's 75 miles or take them, you know, whatever number of hours. And you go, okay, right, well, let's imagine the roads are a bit worse. They've got to stop for a couple of night, you know, a night on the way or whatever. So you can sort of use that. Yep. Um, but I'll do the you, same. Yeah, well, I, I imagine that if you sort of they're on horseback, you think, well, maybe on a bike. Yeah, see it's how halfway far. between a bike and a, and a walking <laughs> something <laughs> <Speed>. like that. <laughs> but there is a great website um, which I mentioned to you the other day, which um, I'm just going to pull up here, and it's the Stanford Geospatial Network Model of the Roman World, and the web address is orbis.stanford.edu, and on there you can basically look at the whole of the Roman Empire and say where you want to travel from and to and then tell it how you want to travel, whether it's by you know which month of the year it is and what whether you want to go short or by road or by sea or different, all these different things. And it will tell you um, how long it would have taken, taken in Roman times using Roman roads and Roman ships and things. But I think that's probably very... Um, transferable to, to early medieval yeah it's period. closer than our modern roads yeah it's really useful so i recommend that for anybody who's who wants to just to look at it for out of interest but if you're doing any historical fiction writing it's great because you can say well i want to go from london to the south of spain using coastal waters you know in in summer or whatever and it will come out and tell you how long it would it would well, take? Well, this is handy because that's one thing you can't do in Google Maps. Really, exactly. Is yeah, a, a ship journey. Yeah, and I've had a couple of those in books, and you're, you're basically just having to guess at the speed of a boat. Exactly, and, and that's what I end up doing. If you yeah. can't use this, you sort of because I've got a few river journeys in the books, mm. and it's like, well, at the moment I've got one, and they're, and they're they're going upstream, and you're thinking, well, how far can you row upstream in a day? And yeah. You know, and you start thinking, well, maybe at a push you could do X number of miles, but then you know, is it really doable to do that day after day after day tired, you, know, you, you get absolutely exhausted yeah. and they've actually got slaves doing it in the the book they've, they've been they've taken on some sort of royal barge you know so they've got slaves taking them but even the slaves you know they're still they're still people yeah, they're right? still going to be tired you're yeah. gonna they're gonna not be able to keep going without just dying so um so yeah but yeah that that orbis um the stanford thing is really useful yeah i'm definitely going to start using that are we doing so, the fauna and flora? Yeah, let's yeah. move on to fauna and flora. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what do you do when you how how much do you pay attention to the whole flora and fauna thing? I don't particularly, but I like to use uh, flowers and things like that to you know brighten up a scene, and it obviously has to be correct with the season, but it also has to be correct. Like they have to be native. We write British historical fiction, so you can't use flowers that would not be native to the UK in AD five hundred or whatever. So you have to yeah. use the right ones. So I really just use Google constantly and just use various different websites. And my mum is a keen gardener, and she always beta reads the books, and she'll tell me, "Oh, you can't use this, you can't use that." And quite often she's wrong as well, which which I quite like, and. <laughs> Because I've obviously researched it and then passed it on to her, and she's researched it, and we've both found various different things. So it's good to get through that process. Different people looking at different things and coming up with different ideas, but there are certain ones you need to get right. Yeah, it's an interesting thing recently. I'm reading um, someone's book who will remain nameless, um, but um, it's it's really well written. I'm really enjoying the book, but um, they. He mentions a couple of things that have stood out as like, and I'm pretty sure it's set in like Anglo-Saxon period. And there's um, one thing, and, it, and this is, you, you know, you've sort of researched too much of this period when this jumps out at you. 
when there's a guy, um, he, he, the sycamore seeds are coming down and he picks up yeah. a sycamore seed. Uh-huh. And I was thinking, there's no sycamore seeds in, in Anglo-Saxon Britain. And I started, I went back and looked at it and it's uh, basically there's some thought that maybe there were sycamores brought in by the Romans, but uh, probably more likely after the Norman conquest. So they're not native to Britain anyway. And um, it seems unlikely that there would have been tons of them around. Yeah, he, well, he, so- the way he thinks about it is like, he, he, he doesn't like to go, wow, what's this plant? He's like, just, thinking about it as like a normal thing that you see loads of them. But does he pick it up and say, oh, there's one of these wee helicopters? Basically, it's it's <laughs> it's almost like that. And I can just imagine the writer, you know, he's probably on a walk wherever, you know, and he's seen it and he's, and he's stuck in his mind and he's yep. used it. But I'm always very careful whenever I see something like that to go home straight away, research it before I dump it in. And if it says something like, they may have appeared in Britain by you know the 10th century or something, I think I'm not going to include it. If, I'm, if it's not certain, if it's not native. I mean, it's native to like Southern Europe. So it's it's pretty unlikely there was lots of them. Yeah. But yeah, that you know you've gone to a whole level, another level of geekdom when you start to see those sort you know, of things in books. And I'm, well, I've and got I'm one cont- of those trees in my garden, so. Well, I'm contemplating whether to tell the writer because it's not published yet, the book, and I don't know whether <laughs> to say something or not about that. But Well, do they not have other trees that have similar things, though? I don't think so. Those wee helicopter things that swirl down. You tell me. You can do that research. I thought, I don't know. I'm sure there's other trees that are very similar, maybe beech trees. I don't know. I'm not sure. Because I don't even know what that tree is in my garden, but I know it's got those wee helicopters. It's probably a sycamore, I'm <laughs> guessing. <laughs> well, I, guess, I thought it was a beech, but who knows? Well, now, we, we, well, if, if, if you're listening to this and you know uh, all about um, sycamore trees and other things that have seeds that come down like helicopters then please contact us well i did i remember googling it before and it was not native to the uk so you're like, yeah, probably right it will be a sycamore and it's not native to the uk uh-huh. there you go you see daft, the daft stuff you do when you're a historical fiction author you google your own tree to see if it was google. native <laughs> google is your friend <laughs> so i've got so some that's... i've got some books about flora and fauna right um i i tend to use i've got some like modern books um, that, that just that I found in secondhand shops. So I've got one that's called The Natural History of the British Isles, just a big hardback that's just got loads of you know stuff about. But again, I always have to kind of do a second check, you know, about about things that I see. But um, ones that are specific to the Anglo-Saxon period, um, I've got um, I've got another one that's called Woodlands of Britain. But then I've got Trees in Anglo-Saxon England by Delia Hook, and that one's very useful. And I've got another one called The Trees and Woodland in the British Landscape by Oliver Rackham. And that's good, too. Um, so, so it's good because they're specific to the Anglo-Saxon period. So they're telling you about the trees that were native at the time. And uh, and do you just do use? like what I would do? Do you just read through it, skim through it quickly and just underline and highlight parts that stick out to you that you can then go back to and use in a book? Yeah, I don't think I've read them cover to cover. I'll yeah, sort of skim through them, and then yeah. some bits I'll, I'll sort of turn to some bits and read them in a bit more detail. But they'll be—I th- I can't remember how they're broken down. But usually, it's like they're broken down by where things grow. So it was like either north of England or south of England, or whether they were used, whether they grew commonly by rivers, or yeah. you know those yeah. sort of things. And so I'll I'll kind of group them like that. Right. You know, um, certain trees that grow more, you know, in, in boggy ground, and some trees that grow on mountain tops, and all that sort of stuff. So, not mounted tops, but you know what I mean, like higher up. Yeah, higher rocky ground or whatever. Yeah, rocky ground. uh, I'm sure, actually, you've, I never mentioned this before, but you'll be the same as me. There's one thing that we need as historical fiction authors, and that is medicine Ah, and the plants that they come from. So I do have a couple of books, especially with me writing about druids. There's plants that they would use for hallucinogenics and uh, medicine. Do you try those out as well? Do you, do, you, do, you, do you try them? You try them out. On, oh no, yourself? I'm very, very straight laced, Matthew. Oh, it's okay. just say no. I think was the catchphrase. How unfortunate! I'm, I'm all the time just sort of brewing up, you know, Mushroom potions, tea. mushrooms. Yeah, all my books are written under the influence of um, high, highly hallucinogenic mushrooms. Agaric mushrooms. That's that's <laughs> that's me. Henbane. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, this is exactly the kind of stuff that we need to know because they, they couldn't just pop paracetamol or they couldn't just go and smoke a joint. 
somewhere the way you obviously do when you're writing your books <laughs> or uh, shooting up or whatever it is you, you do. Shooting up. They obviously had to use the natural ingredients. So I have some books written about that. To be honest, I'm not even on my bookshelf. I don't even know where they are. I've got a book called Medieval Medicine by Tony Mount. That he rings a bell. Writes that historical name. fiction Tony, as well. Tony, well, maybe that's just why right, the name rings a bell. I've also got a book called Witchcraft in the Middle Ages. You got that one? I bet I you don't haven't. think so. No. Now this one, I don't. Think, I've not read this one in its entirety, but this is like a. This is from Cornell University. Oh no, definitely. By Jeffrey Burton Russell. No. Witchcraft in the Middle Ages, written and published. Well, it was written in 1972. This was the fifth printing in 1995. This was definitely a second-hand purchase, but um, yeah, it's quite an academic mm. sort of thing. But I think I saw it somewhere in like an Oxfam shop or something and thought, oh, that looks good. Well, the course... thing with a book like that, even if you skim through it and you find practically nothing useful, you might find one line that just really Well, the thing out. is, I'm looking at it now and I've got a page folded over and it's got... That's a, what I, mean, and I, yeah. I haven't looked at this for years. So I mean, I, I looked at this probably, I don't know, 10 years ago when I was writing one of the books and or six or seven years ago. And it's got the transformation of paganism from 300 to 700 AD. You know, it's talking about, um, about the goddess of the sky and Diana and chthonic characteristics of Diana and things like this. It's all, it's all very, and about Valkyries and stuff. So there's all sorts of things in there that you can pull out and, and use in our books. They do come in handy. It's always good if you want to do a bit of witchcraft. Always. Uh, what else? Oh, a few books about Vikings. I know um, I, I've written, uh, obviously, the, A Time for Swords and uh, A Night of Flames and my new book, which is just, um, which I'm writing at the moment, which has now got a title, which I don't think I'll reveal today. But um, again, about the Viking age. But I have got some books about Vikings. Um, I don't know if you've got any. I've got some of the Osprey books. I've got a few of the Osprey books about Vikings. And I've got a few books about King Alfred which cover the okay. Vikings, and I have some audiobooks as well, uh, The Great Courses. If anybody's on Audible, look up The Great Courses, because they do loads of stuff like King Arthur, but they also do The Vikings, and Norse Mythology, which I bought. So, yeah, and Saxons, okay. Saxons, These Vikings. Have you read that? Yes. The Saxons, uh, um, no, is it Saxons yeah. versus Vikings? No, is yeah, that, it um... must be a short book because the audiobook only lasts for like five hours, less than five hours, but it's quite a funny wee book. Uh, it's well worth a listen on Audible. But yeah, okay. yeah, you should definitely take a look at that Saxons vs Vikings because that's basically your period, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, sounds good. So um, the books that um, that I've got, well, one of them that you, you said you like the sort of the esoteric nature of stuff and, yeah. and to get in, under the skin. If you're into that sort of thing, um, The Children of Ash and Elm by Neil Price is really good. I think you'd like that. It's quite no, sort of academic but thick, but it's got a lot of stuff. They used it in the the movie The Norseman. Um, I think he was one of the consultants on the Norseman movie. Right. He's very much into the whole sort of mindset of why the Vikings were the way they were and what they thought and their sort of thoughts on magic and gods and the world and everything. Um, a little bit too much, I think, maybe, but it's, it's definitely worth reading. Um I've got a book which I haven't even read yet, but it looks interesting, called The Wolf Age by Tor Skea. And it's, uh, I think it's a translation from the Swedish or the Norwegian or something. And that's um, about the whole of this sort of the, um, the North Sea and all of the intercommunications between the different mm -hmm. countries and the, the Norse. River Kings by Kat Jarman, which is, again, all about the Vikings and the Rus going into Russia and the sort of the, the, the Baltic and it was that sweet, area. wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, so those... And I've got an Osprey book about the Vikings as well. The Osprey did... One, they've done like a composite one with all of the Osprey books together oh, into, right. one, into right. one book, which um, I'll show you here because I, I saw this. It was actually... This is an Osprey one, but it's a hardback. We don't do many of these. But it, it basically pulls together a few of their Osprey books into one. It seems to be to me, but it's quite useful. Well, they, they do an, another one, Anglo-Saxon, These Vikings, I'm sure it's called. Yeah, I've got that one as I've well. I've got yeah. that one as well. That's quite handy. This is quite nice. But this is um, not expensive either. They're really good, really good value. 
Now, is that a brilliant publisher? Nine ninety nine. Hardback <laughs> for a hardback. That's excellent. So really good. We've got the one other thing that I use. I don't know about you, but yeah. podcasts. I don't know if you ever listen to podcasts or if you know anything about podcasts, Matthew. Oh, no. What, no. What, what are podcasts? Well, mm-hmm. it's quite often it's just a couple of guys talking rubbish for an really? hour or so. Yeah. Well, someone I, listens to that. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why it what? sounds like a nonsense to me, but you get history <laughs> ones as well. Really? <laughs> uh, so the British History Podcast was one I was listening to recently uh, about Ragnar Lothbrok. And the history of Vikings. So, I mean, I don't want to give just one particular podcast. You can just go into your podcast well, app and search for whatever period or whoever you want to find. There's loads out there. I can mention a couple, although I hadn't prepared because I'm terrible. But um, now you've mentioned it, I have got, funnily enough, I have actually heard a few podcasts. Um, and there's a podcast called Gone Medieval. And that, as far as I'm aware, is actually, if I can see it, I think it's actually by um, Kat Jarman, who I mentioned. Yeah. And there's a medieval podcast as well. That one's good. Is it the one I'm thinking of with the girl that reads it? Possibly, yeah. I can't remember. The Five Minute Medievalist, she's called on Twitter, and she has a podcast that's really, really good. Yeah, there's all sorts of things, and then you get to much more specific things. So when I was doing a book about um, uh, about the, the, the Forest of Foes is, is sort of set in Merovingian France, which is coming out in December, the book, um, and that I found a, a really good podcast called Thugs and Miracles, A History of France, and it covered all through the Merovingian period. It was like really specific about each of the kings and different right. things that happened. And when you go that far back into history there's not a lot of detail it's really mm. difficult to find history books that have got the detail and stuff so that was very good for getting sort of like his overview of, of different kings and different things that was really good and the good thing um, is they're, they're free these podcasts are free i know who'd have thought it i mean you know i would have thought that people could have charged loads of money for these things well these are really intelligent uh people that are putting out these podcasts and well and in, and in the case of this one very good looking people as well yeah I don't know about very nice, intelligent, but lovely beards, <laughs> just like That's... the Vikings of old. <laughs> it's true, and maybe uh, you know a, a horn of mead too. Certainly, I've got my Iron Maiden tankard filled with the finest Scottish ale. This brings us on to our final questions um, that we ask our guests, but when we don't have guests, we ask each other. And you were pleased to know I have not prepared for this at all. I'm sorry, I've done do. what you normally do. I normally prepare for it, and today I haven't. But what have you, Stephen A. Mackay, been reading and watching this week? I've been reading your book, Matthew, as you well know. A time Get of in! And I finally finished it and left a review on Amazon. That was really good. Thank you very much. It was a fine review. Maybe I mean, in another episode, you could just read your review out. I think maybe that would be a whole episode. episode, Just reviewing my books. That's that one review, yeah. One-star reviews. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't a one-star, was it? Oh, my God. No, No, I left five stars. It was a a very positive review. Yeah. Thank you very much. So what about you, Matthew, then? What have you been reading or watching? Well, I've been reading... I did say I was reading um, a book that um, I didn't name, and now I've slagged it off a bit, so I better not name it. But, yes, yeah, so I'm reading a book that um, hasn't been published yet. But I'm actually enjoying the book, but I, I've noticed some historical inaccuracies. Now I'm thinking, what do you think? Should I contact the writer, as it's not yes. been published yet, and say what the issues are that I've spotted? Is yes. The done yes, thing. definitely. I did with, well, the, the Roman book that I reviewed a while ago. There was nothing wrong in it. It's just... They used a word for a certain people I wouldn't have used, and it clashed with a word Bernard Cornwell had used. So I told the author and the publisher, it was an advanced review copy, and I said to them, if I was you, I would change this. It wasn't wrong, as I say. It got the historical accuracy right. It just didn't quite fit. And they changed it. And they were thankful that I'd I'd even mentioned it because they agreed with what I'd said in the end. So... Yeah, I think author, I certainly would want to know if someone was wrong. 
I would want to know before okay. I published it. But it gives you a chance to fix it. So, yeah, I think you should. Matthew. Okay, so based on what you've just said, I will contact said author um, tomorrow and just say I've picked up on these few things. I'm actually enjoying the book. It's really good. But um, I'll mention it in another podcast and say what the book was. We might um, even have them on. We could, we could potentially. Yeah, we could talk about it. Yeah. And uh, what have you been watching? Are you watching anything? I've been watching FBI. Have you ever heard of that show? I think I watched like the very first series. Uh, I'd never heard of it, but I don't have Sky. And it, I, I'm really liking it. It's like Law and Order Special Victims Unit without the really harrowing sexual stuff and victims. You know, it's, it's just like that. So I've been watching, I've been binging that actually. I just sit and play the guitar at night while the kids are in bed. And I just play the guitar while I watch FBI. So I definitely recommend that. Well, I watched um, another episode of Rings of Power. Oh, yeah, um, so did which I. Is, yeah. Which is moving along a bit. I'm not really sure where it's going, but I'm still sort of No, I must admit, it's, it's kind of dropped off a bit, hasn't it? The last episode that I watched, it's like, well, it's not really going anywhere. It's, it started yeah, not... off really well, and now it's just kind of sunk like, a bit. It's like they've got so much money to spend on this thing. It looks incredible. Everybody looks amazing. It looks just brilliant. And it's like, where's it going? What yeah, is it's the as story? If, it's, it's as like... if they know where it's going, but they're trying to string it out over too many episodes. Absolutely. It feels yeah. like a two-hour movie that they've kind of stretched it to be it's six hours 10 hours or something. Or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm still enjoying it, but it's definitely after the first epi- two episodes that me and you really liked. It's yeah. definitely kind of went into a bit of a lull. Yeah, and it's it's a pity, but I mean, I'm, I'm still going to hang in there and see what happens. Hopefully, it picks up again towards the end. Um, I like some of the characters. I like, and as I say, it all looks great, and I like some of the scene, you know, some of the scenes and some of the things have been good. But yeah, it's, it seems a little bit directionless. Yeah. Our last question, of course. What um, what have you been listening to? Well, the new Behemoth album came out a couple of weeks ago. I bought a signed copy of that. Uh, that's the good stuff for when I'm writing. Uh, it's not very melodic or anything, black metal, death metal type stuff. So I've been listening to that and the new Chrysion album, which is also death metal, which I'm sure most readers have no interest in. So what have you been listening to, Matthew? Should well, your tastes are more palatable? I don't know. I've well, I've been listening to different things. Um, a, a reader a reader actually contacted me and said, after our music episode, and said that he listened to um, different things when he was writing and one of the things that he listened to he said was i'm gonna was the the music from the movie the maze runner which i've never watched the movie but i've been listening to the soundtrack and it's great um john paisano did the music and it's a sort of a teen you know a a ya um movie i guess uh, sci-fi but anyway the music's really it's action-packed and but orchestral good so i've been listening to a bit of that and I've also been listening to some black metal. Good stuff. Because um, we have secured a, a guest, as you know, onto the show sometime in a, in a couple of months. Um, and he's in December, yeah. And he is um, a proponent of the band Winterfelleth, or Winterfilleth, I don't know how to pronounce it. So I've been listening to them, and he also has his own band called Arth. Um, was oh, that how you pronounce that? Doom metal. Yeah, I think so. It's, it doesn't Arf. really sound like doom metal to me. It put me off the doom metal tag, which is like Black Sabbath, very slow and monolithic. But it doesn't well, really sound like metal. that to me. Yeah, well, it, it put me off that tag, but I've been listening to it and it's actually really good. And there's a lot of kind of choral chanting and stuff like that that Winterfelleth yeah. uses as well. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that interview with him. And Yeah, so it's a guy called Mark Deeks. Anybody interested? Um, he's a keyboard player and um, well, and plays other instruments as well and sings, of course, and writes music. And and as we're recording this, I think he's in Germany and going to perform um, in, in a cave. Yeah. With Winterfelleth and with Arth. So we're going to talk to him all about that. So as a, I've never listened to much... Um, black metal and so i was listening to winterfilleth some of their really heavy stuff that is kind of your screamy thrashy stuff and then some of the more folky music as well and it's very interesting good good listening good stuff one of my favorite bands to write to 
I may be listening to some. I, I got yeah, a bit headachey after a while with the black metal. <laughs> kind of just got it. Kind of got to me after a bit. It's a bit bit full on. It's like oof. I had to turn it down. I think I had it on my new, normal volume, and it was like, wow, what's going on? My brain's going to melt. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's it for today's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, please let us know if you have any questions or things you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Uh, you can contact us on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash podcast. Uh, we're on Twitter at rock underscore swords. You can find out all about our books on matthewharfey.com and stephenamackay.com. And we're also both on Twitter and Facebook. So look, it up, look us up, drop by and say hello. The theme music is written and performed and copyrighted by Stephen A. Mackay and me. And until next time on Rock, Paper, Swords, it's goodbye from me, Matthew Harfey. And it's goodbye from me, Stephen A. Mackay. And remember, whatever action and adventure you have going on in your life, be kind, stay safe and... Happy reading. Happy reading.